0: Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We'll be picking up right at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 in just a moment as we continue our way through stories at the table throughout the gospel of Luke. Luke 14. I was returning there. You know, you can learn a whole lot about a family by how they eat together. You can learn a whole lot about a family and, and the, the dynamics and all kinds of stuff just by, by seeing them at the table. There's a movie that came out several years ago called Boyhood. Uh, any chance any of you saw that? It was kind of an a odd sort of movie, not, uh, you know, top blockbuster or anything like that, Boyhood. Uh, it traces the story of a boy named Mason from age six to age 18. And it just walks through those formative years of his boyhood, of his life. And it was quite an epic endeavor, filming this movie. Throughout the movie, ages 6 to 18, all of the characters are portrayed by the same actors. And so it took them 12 years to film this movie. Every, every year they would get together at one point in the middle of the year and film a few scenes and stuff, and then next year they'd do it all over again for 12 years. I mean, can you imagine signing up for that? You know, it's like you've been cast in this, and you're going to be acting in this movie for the next 12 years, and no one's going to know. And then it'll come out, and maybe people still won't know. So, you know, I mean, but it is this moving story. It's this, this really moving story. And in the middle of the movie, there is this scene that is set around a dinner table. And the mother is sitting on one end of the table, and there are four children sitting on each side of the table, And as the scene starts, they're all at ease with each other, you know, just sort of the sound of clinking dishes and plates, and they're eating and and chatting and stuff like that. And then the father walks into the room. And everything changes. The children become quiet and very stiff. The mother kind of looks down at her plate Avoiding eye contact, the father forcefully sits down, takes a swig of whiskey, and announces, I'm having a drink with my dinner tonight. Any of you have a problem with that? And then he continues to pour some more for himself and threateningly looks around the table, everyone on edge. He looks toward Mason, this main character, and says to him, you don't like me much, do you? And then he kind of chuckles to himself and says, I don't like me much either. And there's a pause of tense silence when all of a sudden he picks up his whiskey glass and throws it at Mason and it shatters on the ground. And this is just part of this scene that is truly disturbing uh, and, and just fraught with tension Anger. Many people who saw this movie were profoundly affected and impacted by the scene because they had memories of having had dinners like that around their family table. Perhaps, if not outward violence at their table, there was at least that inward fear. As the father or someone walked into the room, everything became stiff and quiet. Experiences like this complicate the image that we've been exploring for the past several weeks. Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God is portrayed as a family dinner, right? You know, a community gathered around the table together. But what kind of family dinner is it? Right? What kind of family dinner is it? Many of us, either because of our own experience of our earthly fathers, or perhaps because of what we have been told about our heavenly Father, may sit at a table, stiff and rigid, with those deep-seated fears. What's going to happen next? Is that the kind of dinner that the kingdom of God is like? Is it the kind is is that the kind of father that we have in heaven? One who's just about to lash out one that we have to, to watch out for, right? What kind of family dinner will the kingdom of heaven be? Will the kingdom of God be? Well, as we've seen for several weeks, Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus shows us exactly what kind of dinner the kingdom of God will be. And we see that in our passage today as we continue. So let's read together Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, Give this person your seat. And then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. No, but but when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he might say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Well, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And then the master told his servant, well, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have invited us to the table. We thank you for your word and for the ways that you show us what kind of banquet, what kind of dinner it is that you invite us to and what kind of God you are. Lord, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what kind of dinner are we eating at in the kingdom of God? Well, I have some good news for us this morning. Jesus is sitting down at tables again, and every moment of this passage that we have just read is showing us what God is like, showing us who God is, because rather than a God of harm, hubris, and hostility, Jesus shows us a God of healing, humility, and hospitality. Jesus shows us a God of healing, humility, and hospitality. So let's look back through the passage again and see just who this God is. Verse 1 picks up as the perfect sequel to the story that we read last Sunday. Remember, last week, Jesus called out the Pharisees and the law experts for their hypocrisy and their legalism, saying, woe to you, right? But instead of responding with soft hearts or repentance, we read that they began to oppose Jesus fiercely, to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say, So instead of looking inward with humility, they looked outward with hostility to catch Jesus in something he might say or do. So here in Luke 14, Jesus is back at a meal with Pharisees. Again, here he is. Which I just. I'm always—my mind is always blown by the fact that, I mean, I think we so often read things as black and white. You know, there's the, the you know, villain or the good guy. Jesus doesn't see life that way. You know, even after all of those words of warning and challenge to the Pharisees a couple chapters ago, he is still eating with them. Man, that's, that's a sermon by itself. But Jesus is back Eating with the Pharisees. And verse 1 says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Right? They have their eye on him, just waiting for him to mess up. Waiting for him to do something. And look, the stakes are, are raised, right? It's not just any Pharisee's home. It is a prominent Pharisee's home. And so this is one of the leaders. This is someone with some measure of power and influence and stuff like that. And now let's raise the stakes a little bit more. He is not just there at this prominent Pharisee's house on any day. He's there on Sabbath, right? The holiest day, which for the Pharisees meant the day with the most shoulds and shouldn'ts. The day with the most do's and don'ts. The day with the most ways that Jesus might mess up, right? They might catch him. So he was being carefully watched. But we see that Jesus is carefully watching too. But he's not concerned with the Pharisees and whatever games they're playing, their expectations, their traps— No, his eyes were on a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. His eyes are on this man afflicted with some kind of what we today call edema, which is a condition in which excess fluid becomes trapped in the body's tissues and there's swelling and, and pain and discomfort and all kinds of stuff. Jesus is not concerned with the Pharisees' do's and don'ts. He is concerned about the man who is suffering there right in front of him. But he knows that he's being watched, so he uses this opportunity to challenge the Pharisees and those law experts, and he asks them, so is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And well, when you put it that way, there's no good answer for them, Right? There's no good way for them to respond, so they remain silent. And without a further word, Jesus takes hold of this man, heals him, and sends him on his way. I just love the, the intimacy of that description, right? Like, Jesus doesn't stay at a distance, we know he could have. He could have just spoken a word and he would have been healed. He could have snapped his finger, reached out his hand, something like that. But that's not what he does. It says he moves toward him. He takes hold of this man, who many probably wouldn't have gone near or touched at all. And this is how Jesus heals him. Jesus is not disgusted. He doesn't withdraw or recoil. He moves toward this is how Jesus heals us. He moves close. So after this tender moment, the man goes along, no doubt rejoicing in what has just happened, and Jesus turns back to the Pharisees and challenges them with another question, saying, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? I mean, this isn't something that you even think about. It's just a reflex, right? Uh, if someone's in danger, if, if someone important to you, your child or, you know, your ox, your, your way of, of living falls into a well, don't you just do something about it, right? You don't sit there, call together a council meeting to discuss the lawfulness of whether or not, you know, you should go get this drowning child out of a well, That's just not what you do. You spring into action. And so once more in verse 6, they had nothing to say to him. And so here in this first part of the passage, Jesus is already showing us what God is like. You see, many, like the Pharisees, have come to believe at some point that God is out to get you that God is is just waiting for you to mess up. Many of us have an image of God like that angry dad at the dinner table, just waiting to to throw something at you in, in rage and anger. But here, Jesus shows us God is not waiting for you to mess up. Rather, God is ready to help us clean up. God's not waiting for you to mess up. He is ready to help clean up. God is not like the Pharisees who are watching for that first mistake. Instead, God is like Jesus, who sees those places of brokenness and suffering and is ready to bring healing, moving toward reaching out God is not waiting for any of us to mess up. He's he's ready to help clean up whatever messes we're already in. That's what Jesus shows us in this first exchange at this prominent Pharisee's dinner table. Next, Jesus notices how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. So he gives them some advice by telling them a story about finding your seat at a wedding feast. Now, wedding feasts are some of the most formal of all formal events, right? They were in that day, and they still are today in in many ways. Often, at wedding feasts, there are seats that are assigned particular people. You know, the family sits here, the wedding party sits there, people associated with the bride sit over here, people associated with the groom, so on and so forth, right? Everyone has their specific spot. And Jesus' advice is very simple and very practical in many ways. He says, Rather than choosing important seats of honor where you might risk being humiliated if asked to move to a lower seat, go ahead and sit at one of those lower seats, where you might just be honored by being asked to move up. Right? It's all very practical advice, something that, you know, you might find on some sort of social life hacks website list or something that comes across Facebook. But that really isn't the point of what Jesus is saying. He's not just trying to give some practical social advice. Uh, In fact, what Jesus says here isn't really all that unique to Jesus. A roughly contemporary Greek philosopher also offered various advice in their day. Plutarch told his followers not to grumble about where they had been seated, but instead said to them, Be thoroughly agreeable to those placed with you, and try to discover in them something that may initiate and nourish a friendship. That's great advice still. But Jesus is not seeking to give good advice here. Again, Jesus is saying something about God. He's saying something about who God is, and he sums it all up in verse 11. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is who God is. God is near to the lowly. And God lifts up the humble. God is near to the lowly, and he lifts up the humble. So far this year, I've made it a practice to meditate on one psalm each week. Slowly praying and reflecting on it during the week. Some of you might have seen on Facebook, I've taken up to writing my own sort of poetic response to each psalm and posting it each week. And so this past week, I was looking at Psalm 138. I was reading that. And in it, the psalmist declares, Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble but he knows the haughty from a distance. Psalm 138, Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble, but he knows the haughty from a distance. There's this irony in what the psalmist is writing there. right? The, one who, the ones who lift themselves up to God's level are actually farthest from God. But the ones who are low are nearest to God's heart. So, so if you want to be close to God on high, get low. Get low. Perhaps life has already left you down on the bottom in some way. Maybe it's some kind of financial struggle, facing depression, feeling lonely or cut off, facing sickness or pain. If you find yourself already flung to the ground in some way, know this. You are near to God. You are near to God. God is near to the lowly, and he lifts up the humble. God is near to the ones who are suffering and in pain, and he lifts them This is who God is. He doesn't stand at a distance. He doesn't shake his head at you. He is near to the lowly and lifts up the humble. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is who God is. So God is a God of healing, He's a God of humility. And in this final exchange of the passage, we see that God is a God of hospitality. A God of hospitality. After sharing about how to be at the table with humility, Jesus begins talking about who is invited to the table to begin with. In verse 12, he says, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends and family and rich neighbors. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the people who can't repay you at all. So here he, he digs even deeper. Right? It's not just about being humble in yourself— I mean, that, that's a lot of, of work to do, a lot of spiritual formation in and of itself, that cultivation of humility. But it's not just about being humble in yourself. This humility is meant to spring out in hospitality to others. Hospitality to others and not the kind of others who might help you climb the social ladder. That's just a different way of exalting oneself, right? Today we like to call it networking, right? You know, I got to get my ends with all the right people. That's not the kind of invitations that you send out. No, true humility is extending hospitality to those who can't repay you or benefit you in any way. But there's something even deeper than this. What Jesus says runs even deeper than this because he doesn't say here, go and serve the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. He says, invite them to eat with you. Don't just go serve them food. Sit down and eat food with them. Invite them to your home. You see, service is radically important to the Christian life. We're called to be servants. But there is a way of serving that maintains boundaries of us and them. There's the us who's doing the serving. And there's the them who need the service, right? The sense that we are serving you— We are the ones who have things put together. You're the miserable mess that that needs us to help you, right? This is a kind of patronizing false humility that Jesus is challenging. See, there is a way of serving that maintains those boundaries of us and them. But what Jesus says here is a kind of hospitality that actually erases That boundary, so that it's only all of us around the table. There's no them anymore. There's just us. And this is deeply challenging. I mean, this is world altering, society changing stuff. This is the kind of thing that makes you pause and rethink your whole life what am I doing? Like, who, who am I with? But then look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, ah, yes, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. No pause, no reflection, none of that. Wait a second, what did you just say? He just says, yes, very good teacher, ha <laughs> ha. So my, my mother and I used to love watching musicals together. I mean, we watched all the classics together. I nearly wore out a cassette tape of Phantom of the Opera by listening to it over and over again. We went to see several musicals when they would come to town. I mean, it was great. We, we loved doing this. This was kind of a thing that we did together a lot. But somehow, in all the musicals that we watched, we never watched Les Miserables, which if you're familiar with it, is just amazing. This amazing, musical, amazing story. My college roommate is the one who introduced me to it. Eventually, he and I ended up going to see it lie a live production of it with a couple of friends. And it, it is amazing. I mean, the first 15 minutes, by itself, is enough to leave a person in tears, ready to change everything about their life. That's literally what happens in the story. But then, after those first 15 minutes, there's another two and a half hours that just keep bringing you through these depths of, of story and this beautiful music. And I mean, it is a beautiful, transcendent story. It culminates in one of the most moving choruses of hope depicting the kingdom of God that I've ever heard. It's, it's incredible. And so, whenever they made a movie of it, several years, I think it was 10 years ago that they made a movie of it, I was thrilled to share this with my mom. I, I, I'll never forget visiting her one time and saying, We have got to watch this musical. It, it's so great. I, you'll love it. And so, we did. We watched it one evening. We probably ordered pizza. That's what we did pizza in a movie. And as we watched it, man, I was swept up in it all over again, and the music, and the story, and all of this, and we finally made it to that beautiful ending, and the credits rolled, and I looked at my mom, and I said, so what did you think? And she said, it was nice. <laughs> and I was a little disappointed. So, oh, But I mean, aren't you just weeping right now? It was nice. And I mean, maybe it was kind of late and she was tired. Maybe it just wasn't her thing. I don't know. That's fine. But man, I just wanted to gush about it. And oh, isn't it beautiful? And the story, and look at the theology and the spiritual connections here. It was nice. That's fine. It certainly didn't land the way I had hoped. I think something like that is what happens in the story here that we've just read. You see, Jesus has just made this provocative, challenging, world-altering statement about breaking down barriers, inviting the least of these who can't possibly repay you, not just to serve them, but to actually welcome them as equals into your home, and he says this this world altering thing, and instead of responding with pause and reflection, someone just says, "Blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God." A sort of theo- theological isn't that nice? So in verse sixteen, Jesus tries again. Jesus goes a little bit deeper. Instead of just telling them, hey, you should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, he begins to tell a story about a banquet. So he says a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time, the banquet Uh, At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But then, one at a time, each one makes an excuse. Oh, I'm busy. I have something else going on. There's something I have to take care of. It sounds like a lot of people today, right, who can be socially kind of flaky and distant, But when none of those original guests come, the host sends his servant out to the streets and the alleys of the town to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. After that has been done, the servant returns and reports, hey, there's still more room. And so the host says once more, we'll go out even further to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And Jesus tells this story. He opens up a whole new world, a deeper way of entering into what he's already said. In some ways, this story is, is kind of a, a, a story of all of Scripture, right? You have this, this age and time whenever it was only the priests, the spiritually elite, who had access to God's presence, but, of course, they end up abandoning God, turning to idols and other things, and then comes Jesus, and he begins to reach out and suddenly it's it's not the spiritually elite uh, that Jesus is drawing near it's the blind, the crippled, the poor, the lame, right These are the people who are drawing near to God in the flesh but it goes further than that, right? There's still more room, the servant says. And so there comes an age when through the Holy Spirit, it's not just the Jews that draw near to God, even the least of them among the Jews. It is out in the farthest reaches, beyond the town, all people, every nation, right? This is the story of Scripture. When we get to the very end in Revelation, every tongue, every knee, every nation, every tribe is bowing before throne. There's more room in this house. In some ways, this story is a story of all of scripture that Jesus tells wrapped up right here. In other ways, it's a story about us. I wonder, as you consider this story, where are we? Where are you in this story? We can't deny that, that we absolutely are Those poor, blind, crippled. Those who can't repay God at all. And yet he's invited us to his table. This is a story about the grace of God that allows us to join him and be near to him. But perhaps... We are those who are invited at first at times, but have become distracted by other things. Are there things that keep our attention from God? Oh yeah, I'll come to that dinner, but when the time comes, actually I've got something else going on. There are all kinds of things that keep our attention from God every day. Maybe that's who we are in this story sometimes. Perhaps... We are the servant, right? The one who is sent out by the host. Hey, go tell everyone that it's time. But as we're telling people, they're not interested, right? Oh, I'm busy. I don't want that, right? And so what, what then? Well, go tell more people. Tell people you wouldn't expect. Tell people who you don't even want to talk to. Invite them in. There's more room in this kingdom. Maybe we're that servant who's been sent out. Or perhaps as the body of Christ, we are the host who is called to welcome and say, come, come join. Not just our service to you, but but this table of equals to sit around and break bread together. The story Jesus tells, it's the story of Scripture. It's also the story of of us. But most importantly, this story that Jesus tells is the story of God. This is who God is. Going back to that image that we started with, is there a part of you, maybe you've been told before, maybe you think or feel somewhere deep that God's holding out something against you? In this story, the only one that keeps something, that that keeps themselves from the, the table, from the dinner, is themselves. God is not kicking anyone out. God is not pushing anyone away. God wants everyone to enter the feast. God wants everyone to come and join. This is who God is. Go out. Tell them to come in. Tell them to eat. Come. The table is ready. This is who God is. He is a God of healing. He is a God of humility. He is a God of hospitality. Ready to open his doors and welcome us all if this is who God is, well then who should we be? May we be a people who receive his healing, who live and walk humbly with our God, and who extend our arms to all who come across. May it be so. Amen.